Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We are, after six months of talking about prayer, we're segueing out of that. We concluded, Dr. Peter Kapsner and I talked about prayer for six months with special guests, and we had a blast. We wrapped things up last week, and we we decided this month of May we would pick a different topic every week. And so today we're going to talk about things in the unseen world with Dr. Michael Heiser. We're going to bring him on in just a minute, time permitting. Because, Peter, well, you and I might get real interesting and, <laughs> and might have no need to bring them on. Yeah, I, if I was a betting man, I think I, I think I'd bet against us uh, on that moment. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. Our listeners were really interesting last week as we were recapping the prayer series, yes. right? And they sent in so many different suggestions oh, of things that we could cover. That I, any number of them felt like they could be months, even years at a time. So it was such fun to hear what they had to say, what they would be interested in. And this is one of the topics I think that people would really like to hear about. Yeah. Dr. Michael Heiser is a biblical scholar. He's an author. He's a blogger. He's a podcaster. He's written a number of books that if you read any of them, you have to spend a long time going through them because it's not easy reading. That's just me speaking. But The Unseen Realm, the last book I spent time with, is amazingly interested. It's literally changed the way you read the Bible. Well, it does. It's one of those topics that does really make you think really difficultly because you just, this isn't my native language when it comes to theology is to think about ideas within the unseen realm. And so there's some of those books where I have to read a page and then set it aside for a second, pick it back up, feel like I maybe understood 10% of the page, right? And then I read (laughs) it through again, and then maybe at about 50%. And over time, you do pick up sort of a new way to talk about a new way to think about things. But it's not easy to exercise the brain uh, a no. lot of times like See, this. I, and, put it, and, I read a page, put it down, and go watch Gilligan's Island, <laughs> and then I come back. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sure Thurston and Marianne and the whole gang really help yeah, you get back into it does, theology, It does don't help they? me yeah. get back. Anyway, Dr. Michael Heiser is joining us back again. Michael, so glad you could be with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm glad it worked out. You yeah. Know, I, I know I know exactly what you guys are saying. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that is kind of the way I react when... When I look at Facebook, like there's so much going on, I don't know what to do. I just close it. <laughs> <You got it? laughs> exactly. Well, we've been talking about prayer for six uh, months, getting in guests every week to talk about their, uh, their prayer experience and all of that. And one of the, the last guests we had brought this point up, and I thought, this is a question I would like to ask Michael Heiser before we get started with other questions that we've got prepared for you. And I say prepared. I did homework. I don't know, Peter, if you did or not. Anyway, here's the question. Here's the statement, Michael. The weapons of our warfare are not natural, man-made, or carnal, but divine weapons for the pulling down of divine strongholds. What do you think of that? Well, I I think it's correct. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually a really good segue into something I think that gets misunderstood. And that is the whole, you know, notion of spiritual warfare. Okay. So depending on who you read, you know, and you get into the topic of spiritual warfare, it's like, okay, you know, I need to go and say this or that 
incantation or invoke the name of God a number of times and do it in Hebrew and, you know, shout at this or that demon. And, you know, we, we tend to think that, that it's these outward sort of performance oriented things. But if you actually look at Ephesians 6, which is where we get the principalities and powers, you know, comment, mm-hmm. and you keep reading all of the, the things that are sort of supposed to combat this have nothing to do with, you know, sort of these performance kinds of things that we think of. You know, it, it, it's prayer. It's, you know, trusting in the word of God. It's, you know, all these sort of, we, I'll use the word passive, but they're not really passive, but you know what I mean? They're, they're things that, they're weapons that, that are there, but they're not of our origin. <laughs> and so to me, that goes right along, you know, with, with, you know, how you opened here, you know, it, it just, yeah, you know, they're, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not self-derived, you know, if we're going to, you know, make any progress in spiritual warfare, which I ultimately define as, as fulfilling the Great Commission, and I, I do that for a number of reasons, basically because of what Paul says in Romans 9, um, if, if that's the ultimate endpoint, then, you know, those are spiritual pursuits, you know, they're, they're not performance-oriented things that we come up with on our own. It's speaking truth to lies. It's trusting God. It's it's being courageous enough to do the right thing, even when it hurts. You know, it's the fruit of the spirit. Um, it, it's all these things wrapped up into one, and 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 that advances discipleship, the Great Commission, the strength of the church, and that's what the the powers of darkness fear the most. Um, because that is what leads to their destruction in, in biblical theology, anyway. Michael, I'm curious. I I think there's that sense in which that if you can just say the right words, if you can say them in the right languages, as you mentioned, that you will have some sort of effectiveness in the spiritual realm when it comes to strongholds or, or just different things in prayer in our lives. But if it's not about our performance, are, are we simply just conduits of God's power in some way? Do we participate in some way as agents within God's power that does this work that you're describing in in prayer? I think people just want to know how to be effective in these realms in their life. Yeah, I, I think I think whether it comes to prayer or some other other sort of context in in this regard, you know, I mentioned the phrase "speak truth to lies," and and I'll you know, in many cases that means speaking them to ourselves, you know, reminding us ourselves of the truth of Scripture, you know, whether when we're praying about something or for something or for someone else, you know, speaking a, a, a good word, you know, to, to some other person. Because a lot of our, our struggles really are revolving around, you know, our our sense of, you know, unfortunately, this sense of, of how God, does, does God really like me as much today as he did when I became a believer? You know, we, we, we tend to doubt, you know, God's steadfast love toward us. You know, his dispositions changed to, you know, toward us because we struggle with X, Y, Z sin. You know, we, we, we tend to, to worry, you know, so many times about certain things. And we forget that this world really isn't our home. You know, we forget, you know, that Jesus said, you know, God is fully aware of the things you need, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there we go back to, again, the the mission we were given, you know, the Great Commission, discipling, you know, discipleship and becoming better disciples and things like this. I mean, all of these things factor into prayer because prayer is ultimately, you know, God doesn't learn anything when we pray. You know, he he didn't, you know, he's not going to hear anything that, oh, boy, that wouldn't escape my attention. 
you know, it's really about us becoming more dependent on him. And I think if we have a good grasp of the big picture, you know, how, how God does love us, what we're here for to image him. And we, and we are a, each one of us is a, a component part to the advance of this thing called the kingdom, which is really the restoration of all that has been lost, whether it's Eden or, you know, our, our position, our, our fitness for sacred space as a, as human beings, you know, all these things, I, I think we we constantly need to remind ourselves of you know one of our one of our big problems I think again I'm I'm sorry to to kind of riff on this but I think one of our major problems is the mistake that that God is only in the spectacular and so when we pray you know we 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 tend to look for this one to one equation like boom there's that thing that I prayed for and then that's the answer. But we don't realize is that isn't the way our life works. It's not the way our lives work because all of us could tell our stories and realize if if we have hindsight, if we you know intentionally exercise some hindsight here, that this blessing we can remember that God gave to us that was preceded by a number of anonymous things, you know, conversations between this person or that person that we never knew. And then that one person hears something and says or does something else. And there's this ripple effect of this cause and effect ripple effect of, of the way life really works. And we call that providence. But, it, you know, God was in every one of those steps leading up to the thing that we actually noticed. Um, you know, I think it, we, we need to recover a sense of, of God is always working you know, on, on behalf of us and other believers and ultimately his own plan. And most of his activity will, will, will never be seen or discerned. You know, only in hindsight can we get certain glimpses. This is why I love movies that, like, it's a wonderful life. You know, if I'd have made the right turn instead of the left turn, how would my life have turned mm -hmm. out? Because mm -hmm. those movies force you to think about how your life would have been different. And, and if you go back, you know, George Bailey goes back and looks at his life, what, what, he is and where he's at are the result of dozens of tiny, tiny events that nobody even thought about at the moment, but, but they, they created direction or misdirection or, you know, steered him in, a, in, a, in the wrong direction. This is the way life is. It's the way providence is. And I think this is the way prayer, you know, ultimately works because most of what God is busy doing on our behalf, we're never going to notice and I think we need to remember that, that even when we don't get the answer we want, it doesn't mean he's not up to something, uh, because he is. He's always up to something. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're going to take a very short break. We're going to come back with Dr. Michael Heiser. We're talking about the supernatural worldview of the Bible. If you've got a question or a comment, something you'd like us to clarify, let us know what it is, 877-933-2484. Peter Kapster and I are so glad to be having Michael on the show today. Again, the number Dr. Michael Heiser today on our guest line. He is an author of many books. One we're chatting about today is The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. It seems like we 
will often downplay or try to explain away the parts of the Bible that speak of the gods or the sons of God who function as God's heavenly, you know, deputies or whatever, right. whatever their role right. is. And Michael's done a really good job of talking about that. And Peter, at the break, you were talking about something I said. Well, ask Michael that question. That's a good question. Yeah, Michael, it seems to come up in my classes at least once a year, this idea from the book of Job that opens with Satan mm-hmm. seemingly waltzing kind of into the inner court of the divine heavenly realm in which in which God is. And as Bill and I were chatting about it, it's like this, this seems to be post to some sort of battle in heaven where Satan and a third of the angelic army gets thrown down to earth and becomes sort of the demonic kingdom. And yet there now is the ability for Satan to interact within God's inner court coming before him to have a conversation about Job. I think I have probably 47 different questions about that. But if you can just maybe give us a, a bird's eye <laughs> view about that scene, what is happening here? How do I'm we understand all 47. this? All 47, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, you you you've you've combined two grenades into one. No, I mean the we'll take the the sort of the easy one first, uh, or, or I think maybe the most understandable one first, and that is this this notion that a third of the angels rebelled with Satan. Of course, we never read that in Genesis. We, frankly, we never read it anywhere. Uh, that that is an idea that that is not found in the Bible at all. And so the, the closest you get to it is Revelation 12, which, you know, look looky there, that's the last book of the Bible. <laughs> you, know, you get Revelation 12, where you get the, lang- the vocabulary of three or third, and then this reference to not necessarily angels with that reference, but stars, okay, Revelation 12. You know, later in the chapter, you know, Satan is going to have angels, but they're not described there as being thrown out of heaven either. And if you read Revelation 12, uh, you know, specifically the line is the dragon, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Okay, well, if, and basically every scholar I'm familiar with uh, considers that an allusion to Daniel 8.10, this idea of casting the stars of heaven to earth. If you go back to Daniel 8.10, they're good guys. In other words, this would be an instance where the dragon actually defeats or subdues or, or something negative. A, a, a you know, bunch of good guys, angels, stars, you know, because that language is used of the heavenly host. And, and they're not, this isn't a rebellion, it's a defeat. Okay. And, and so you have that problem as well. So you there is no passage, you know, that, that teaches this. We keep reading Revelation 12. Where's the dragon? The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Okay, it, it's a clear reference to the birth of the Messiah. It's quoting a, a messianic psalm. Okay, so that did not happen in some primeval era before creation or before Adam and Eve. So this whole notion of this Mm. primeval rebellion, you know, you you don't have any place to go for it, but it is nevertheless something that is taught uh, in most, you know, Christian traditions. So since I I take a a low view of that, like, I don't think the Bible teaches this idea, but I nevertheless do think that God has lots of supernatural enemies. I mean, these 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 guys come from somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So that that's the second part of the question. The first one, you know, might even be I don't know. Is it going to be more or less controversial than what I just said? Um, I don't think we have the devil in Job one and two. 
which is why, again, you, your question sort of hinted at the incongruity of the idea, like what is, you know, what is Satan presuming he's the devil doing in this, this heavenly court meeting or this heavenly you know, council meeting? You know, wasn't he supposed to be cast down, you know, or punished back in the garden? And the answer is, yeah, he, he was. You know, the original rebel was punished. He's cast to the earth. Earth is the Hebrew term Eretz, which also can be used to describe the underworld. Uh, that makes sense that we have an underworld now because we have death as a result of you know what happens in Eden. Eden is no more. Adam and Eve are driven out. They're going to die. Everything dies now. So what's he doing up here? Well, again, the short answer is that you know maybe maybe this isn't the devil. Maybe this is a different character. This is why in study Bibles, like ESV is the one I typically use, it'll say, even though it capitalizes Satan, it'll have a footnote that says the adversary. And what that's telling you is that we don't really have the devil here. We have the, the adversary. And this is actually a rule of Hebrew grammar, the reason why this is so. This is where you get into the weeds. And most people, if they have an interlinear, they'll see this or figure it out. But if they don't, this is going to sound like crazy talk. And I understand that. I'm the guy who who is often looked at like he has two heads, and I'm used to that. <laughs> um, in this case, though, Hebrew is like English. Hebrew does not tolerate a definite article, the word the, in front of a proper personal name. In other words, I'm not the Mike. Okay, that just sounds ridiculous. Okay, we, we, that's not how we refer to people. We use just their personal name. We don't put the in front of it. Hebrew is like that. It does not tolerate a definite article before a proper personal name. And in every case in Job 1 and 2 and, and Zechariah 3, the word Satan which, you know, Satan, Satan, is preceded by a definite article. So we have the Satan. So what we need to do is not make it a proper name. We need to translate it, the what? Well, the adversary. That's what Satan means, the opposer, the challenger, the adversary. There's not any number of ways you could translate this. And so right out of the gate, if this is not a proper personal name, and there's nothing in the passage that explains or connects back to Genesis 3, and there isn't, and we also observe the fact that in Genesis 3, the serpent, Nakash, is never called Satan, nor is he called Satan anywhere else in the Old Testament. We have really a, a passage that needs to be interpreted quite differently. Now, you know, in my, in my view of this is not new to me. This is pretty common, actually, is that we have a member of the divine court or a you know, sort of an officer that shows up at a divine court meeting. And they're the sons of God are assembled and the adversary, you know, the, the opposer, the accuser, whatever, shows up and God asks him, hey, where have you been? And he answers. He says, well, I've been going to and fro throughout the whole earth. This is actually this individual's job. Okay, this is, again, if you, if you drill down in a word study, you'd find out that this is a, this is a court task. This is also actually part of a bigger motif in the Old Testament of heavenly books and heavenly courts. You get this in Daniel 7, you get it in Daniel 4, you get it in well, Revelation, the book of life. You get, there are actually half a dozen different heavenly books that the Bible alludes to. The one we know the most is the book of life. But anyway, you know, this, this guy's job is to see who's, who's obeying God and who's not, you know, the, because God's keeping tabs on everyone. And the point is that not that God is a bad memory. The point is that nothing is ever overlooked. 
And on the day of judgment, the books will be opened, to quote you know, a few passages in Scripture. And we're going to find out that God's assessment is correct, aren't we? So he shows up and God says, hey, you know, have you, have you looked at Job? That guy is awesome. <laughs> you know, that guy's blameless. You know, and God starts, you know, you know, going off on, on how wonderful Job is and how, how proud he is of Job. And, and, and so what does the adversary say? Yeah, I, I know. I've seen that guy. You know what? If you took away everything he had and you harmed him, he'd curse you to your face. Now we have a problem, because this isn't part of the job description. <laughs> he's what, it, what it is, is he's challenging God in two ways. He's, he's calling into question God's omniscience. Does God really know everything? And he's also challenging God's integrity. Maybe God knows some unfavorable things about you that he isn't telling anyone else. So it's a challenge. And so the rest of the book is God vindicating his character and his integrity. And unfortunately, it's at Job's expense. But Job doesn't know any of this. But he, and he can't just wipe out the, you know, the adversary and just like destroy him or something like that. Because if he does that, the questions are still on the table. So you don't get out of answering the questions. God doesn't by destroying the adversary. Instead, he says, okay, you can do whatever you want to him except kill him. And, and that prohibition's there so that you can't come back and say, oh, well, Job would have buckled. I would have been right if, if he, you know, but I, you know, he just died. You know, I, I can't help it now, but I'm still right. No, no, we're not doing any of that. You can do whatever you want to him, but you're not going to kill him. And we'll see who's correct. And, and again, we know how the book book ends, you know, Job, you go through the book and Job's wondering why he's suffering. Well, he ought to because he is blameless. God is correct. And, and what does it teach us? You know, it teaches that sometimes the righteous suffer for reasons that they cannot know and just can't fathom. The circumstances can't, you know, they're just beyond human understanding. But we have to trust God because we have the example of Job, because in the end, you know, God did remember Job. Job never, you know, curses God to his face. He is righteous. God is correct. And God restores. Now, that does, that's not a guarantee is God's going to do that for everyone who suffers, you know, in unjustly. But if, you know, if we're believers, we are going to get everything back that we've lost and more, you know, we'll be in the presence of God. But this is the message of Job. Sometimes mm -hmm. you just can't know why you're suffering. You know, it's just what it is, but it has nothing to do with, you know, the the devil of Eden, but it, it does have to do with a challenge of God, you know, in, a, in one of these supernatural meetings. And there's a lot of these, these kinds of meetings in the Bible. We'll take a short break. Our guest is Dr. Michael Heiser, and I'm here with the Peter, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll be right back with lots more in just a minute. Let's get it started. 
So glad to have Dr. Michael Heiser as our guest today. He's written a number of books. The one we're chatting about is called The Unseen Realm, Recovering Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. So, Michael, I hope you had a chance to uh, take a few sips of water and get ready for round two. I did. I'm I'm waiting for the next explosive question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one may not be that explosive, but I'm trying to think of. Well, we'll, we'll try. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to go to the, to the Garden of Eden. So we've got humans now, made in the image of God. Was that also the first official site of the what would be the heavenly council? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, is the case. I mean. This is the plural language uh, issue in Genesis 1, 26. Uh, I'll just read it from ESV. Then God said, let us make man or humankind in our image after our likeness, and so on and so forth. Then when you get to verse 27, God is the one, he's the lone creator. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we have this plurality in the first verse, and then it, you know, it switches back to the, to the singular you know, creation references in the next verse. And people have wondered about this for a long time. And the, the, the common view within you know, believing Christianity is that this is the Trinity, you know, and I, I like to say, you know, if this was the only verse that had divine plurality language in it, you could probably get away with that. But it's not. <laughs> so, you know, in fact, in Genesis, you get the same language over in chapter 11. I just, you know, again, your listeners can can uh, remember this because it's a very common passage, it's Tower of Babel story. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. Okay, so Yahweh's down there looking at what's going on. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people. They all have one language. This is the only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, verse 7, let us go down. Now, wait, wait a minute. If God is already down there, and God is a triune being, and all the beings of the Trinity are, are omnipresent, I mean, how they... Shouldn't they already be there? Like, I mean, it, why is he asking them to come down? Why would they not be there with him, you know, in the unity of the Godhead and all that? So you, you get this, this sort of confusing, you know, kind of, of language. And I think a, a better view, and frankly, I think a simpler view, is to have God in what Genesis 1.26 speaking to a group. Come, you know, let us make man in our image. And the group, I think, is the heavenly host, because they're the only ones that are there. According to Job 38, 7, the sons of God, the stars of God, they're also called there, were witnesses to the creation of the foundations of the world. And of course, that precedes you know, the creation of humanity. So I think he, he's talking to this group, the heavenly host, his agents, and says, you know, I've, I've got a great idea. You know, let, let's, let's create humankind in our image. And I, I'm one, I, you know, again, this isn't unique to me, but I'm in the, in the scholarly view that translates this as let us make humankind as our image, uh, meaning that we are, humans are God's proxies. We are his representatives on earth. The image of God is not a thing or a quality given to us. It is a status. It's basically by definition what we are. And so, why the plurality? Well, in some way, it links us to God, to the heavenly host. And what links us is that the fact that they are 
God's agents and proxies as well in the spiritual world. They you know, are his children. Scripture uses the children metaphor for heavenly beings, sons of God. And, and they are certainly his partners. You know, his, he, they, they work with and for him to do things he wants done in the spiritual world. That's what we're going to be tasked to do, Adam and Eve are tasked to do in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. There's a dominion mandate that goes along with the image. So I think God is just announcing to a group what he intends to do. Now, that, they don't create us with him because the verbs are all singular in Genesis 1:27, and frankly, they're singular in every other passage. We only have one creator, God himself. I like to illustrate it this way. You know, if I, if I went into a class I was teaching and I said, hey, let us go get pizza. And everybody said, oh, that's a good idea. You know, okay, so we get in my car. It's a big car. Get in my car. I pay. I pick the restaurant. I choose the toppings, but everybody gets to eat. In other words, there, there's there's some role to play that, you know, they're gonna I'm gonna allow them to participate here somewhere. But I'm in control of the situation, and I'm just announcing my intended will, and I carry it out. I think that's what we have going here, uh, and and I think it's actually important because throughout Scripture, the way God speaks about His heavenly family, His heavenly children as children and partners with him. A lot of that vocabulary gets transferred to human believers, especially in the New Testament. And it's designed to, to inform us that heaven and earth are supposed to be in sync. You know, as in heaven, so on earth. God has a plan for his, you know, his supernatural family, and he has a plan for his human family. And in the beginning, they, they came to earth with God. God comes to earth in Eden, where God is, his entourage is. Eden is his home. Eden is not the whole planet. It has its own geography. It's just a little piece of turf on the earth. He gives humans a mandate and says, I want you to join my family here, and I want you to be my representatives on this planet. You alone, you are my proxies, and we're going to live you know, and work together to enjoy this wonderful thing that I've created for you. But I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And my heavenly host is here with me. And we're, we're all going to be one family and enjoy the works of my hand. And that lasts not too long. <laughs> <laughs> because in, in doing so, when God makes us and them, his proxies, to carry out this partnership, he also shares with them his attributes. In theology, this is called the communicable attributes. And one of those attributes is freedom. You know, we can't say we're God's imagers if we share all of his attributes, but we want to withhold that one. You know, no, I'm sorry, but but humans have free will too. That's one of God's attributes that he shares, you know, along with all the other ones. And so God knows what's at stake here. He's not taken surprise when there's a fall. He's not taken surprise when there's rebellion because he has given them free will and he knows they're not him. We lack and they lack, sons of God, the heavenly hosts lack his perfection and his, his perfect nature. So God knows what's going to happen and he makes plans to continue with the idea, the desire to have a human family, even after it happens. 
this is where you get the Lamb of God slain from the before the foundation of the world. And you know, God has a God already has a plan, which is really incredible because when you think about it, God knows that that evil is going to enter this picture. He knows it's going to happen, but he'd rather have a world and a plan that goes that direction. He'd have, he'd rather have a world in which there is evil and suffering than to not have us at all. So I think it's really important for theodicy as well, you know, the relationship of God and evil. God doesn't need evil. Okay? He, he doesn't make people sin. He doesn't cause evil. Evil just is. It's a byproduct of God's original wish, his hunger, his desire to have us with him. And, and God deemed that worth the price that, that would have to be paid. So I think it, it, it puts our relationship to him in a, in, a, in a pretty dramatic light. And it explains, again, where we get spiritual evil and human evil and, and depravity extends from us. And again, God is not surprised uh, by any of this. In, you know, in Unseen Realm, I talk about you know, the foreknowledge and predestination. Again, I don't, here's another grenade for your audience. I mean, we're, we're casting <laughs> grenades. But, I, you know, I don't believe that foreknowledge necessitates predestination. I think that's pretty obvious from passages like 1 Kings 23, where God foreknows two things that never happen. Okay, so by definition, they couldn't have been predestinated, and they, and they weren't predestinated by virtue of God foreknowing them. You know, even the Reformed creeds agree on this. God knows all things real and possible. Well, in order for those two categories to exist, they have to be different. God knows possibilities. That doesn't make them realities. Foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. That's important, again, for understanding God's relationship to evil. You know, he, he didn't create it. He doesn't need it. He doesn't cause it. But he can defeat it. He responds to it. And he's going to do He's big enough to, to get it done by not withdrawing free will, which would mean taking our imaging status away. He doesn't need to change the rules midstream. He's big enough to accomplish his will and, and, and leave things as they are. It wasn't a bad idea. It wasn't a mistake. God is going to, he's, he's going to have his way. He is going to have his way in the end. You know, so this is one small little verse, but there's a lot that extends from it. And again, this, this notion of, of a symbiotic relationship between the supernatural world and our world and how God wanted them originally to be blended. It explains why believers are called the sons of God and the children of God. It explains why believers are, are, are described in the New Testament as, as being sacred space. You know, it, we're, the same thing that made space sacred in the tabernacle and the temple now indwells the believer. You know, we're, we're the temples of the living God, you know, the temple of the living God. You know, we're, you know, the, the whole thing about living stones, you know, we're living stones. This is, this is temple language. You know, all of this is, none of this is accidental, I should say it that way. None of this is accidental. We're, we're supposed to read these things and think about the, the glorious reality of living in the presence of God. And we're supposed to remember that humans, you and me, you know, we're, we're meant, it should be the most natural thing in the world. We were meant to occupy sacred space in the presence of God. That, that, that should be the most normal, natural way that we think about how God thinks of us. 
And all of that extends from, again, just thinking about the Eden narrative as God's home and he's with his, his you know, entourage, his heavenly host, and he, make, he wants to add humans to it. You know, all of these things just ripple out from Genesis. Uh, and, there's, and there's so much of this in the Bible. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this the other times I was on your show, but when I went through seminary, I went through Bible college, seminary, and of course, graduate school. But we'll, we won't count graduate school because I went to a secular university. But <laughs> Bible college, well, for this question, I won't add, you know, add, count it. Bible college and seminary. During that four or five years, I had... I think we had a little... Oh, there you hour. go. Sorry, Michael, you need to repeat your last sentence. When I was going through Bible college and seminary, I had one clock hour, 60 minutes of instruction on the supernatural world. Wow. And when that happens to you, you you just by default think, well, this can't be very important or otherwise they would have spent more time on it. Okay. It's really important, both in terms of, of the dark side and, and again, some of these positive things, the way God looks at his, his earthly children. And, and the, the spiritual stuff is really a template for God understanding his, you know, for God, the way God looks at, you know, us as, as, as people. In Hebrews 12, you know, the, the cloud of witnesses. We think that, that the context for that is Hebrews 11, and it is, but that's only part of it because you keep reading Hebrews 12. And, and where are those children? They're in festal gathering of innumerable angels, the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You go to Hebrews 2, where God presents us to, you know, Jesus presents us to God and God to us, quote unquote, in the congregation. It's in the council. This is what we're, where we're supposed to be. Ultimately, believers will replace all of the rebellions that have occurred in the supernatural realm. We will displace what has been lost. That's our destiny. But we, we can't think about that unless we sort of know the lay of the land, if, you know, if I can use that metaphor, the spiritual world. Michael, we'll take a short break. Dr. Michael Heiser is our guest. His book is The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. We'll be right back. Peter Kapsner and I are um, so glad to have Dr. Michael Heiser on. And Peter, during the break, we, we were talking 100 miles an hour, and you were <laughs> confirming that in your seminary training, you had about an hour of teaching as well. Yeah, yeah. If that, I went to a Bible school, and I also went to seminary, and, and we just did not cover this at all, yeah. a, a, at all. And, and I'm with you. I went to a secular university for the rest of my graduate work, so it wasn't there either in any of those spaces. So I think, I mean, Bill, this is really unfamiliar territory I think for so many listeners, because it's not just that we don't understand it very well, but then our pastors don't get trained in it terribly well. And then we don't talk about it from the pulpit. It just trickles down. Mm-hmm. And so no wonder some of this probably sounds like, whoa, what is happening right now? And I think some listeners have texted yeah. in, right? Yeah, we've had some listeners. Uh, maybe, Michael, if you could circle back to you know this whole episode with Job, uh, 
where you said the Bible does mm-hmm. not say that Satan was the serpent in Genesis and also that Satan wasn't the one requesting to test Job, then who or what does he believe to be the one who did, scripturally speaking? Am, am I on? Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> turn turn okay. his mic on, yeah, Rosie. Let's get his mic it, on. Let, let the man talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, the, the Apostle John at the end of the book of Revelation, when he, he does refer to the dragon and the serpent and the devil as, as Satan, he's not incorrect. But what we have to realize is that Satan, Satan, is a title. It's a word that, that gets used to describe the supernatural rebel of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, that rebel is known as the serpent. Okay, he is not known, he is not described with the term Satan, Satan, in any book of the Old Testament. Again, by virtue of the, you know, the stuff about Hebrew grammar, I said, you, you can just look it up. Genesis 3 does not use the term, and, and no place where the term occurs references Genesis 3. That's just a fact of, of the text. So that, that shouldn't bother us, because if we realize it's just a title, it's just a word that a writer would use to you know, paint a picture or to portray the rebel, then it, it makes sense. Now, what happens is, is that the original rebel of, of Genesis 3, the one that caused the fall and the destruction of Eden and the bringer of death and the Lord of the dead, all those things. Gradually, as time goes on, you know, through the Old Testament period on into the intertestamental period, there are writers uh, in the intertestamental period that, that come to use all sorts of vocabulary for this rebel that, that we find in the New Testament. We have Belial, the worthless one. We have Theobolos, okay, devil, okay, the, which is just the slanderer. And Satan actually become, begins to be used as a title for this rebel in the intertestamental period. He's the, he's the adversary. You know, the shoe fits, so let him wear it. That's what he did. He opposed God. So it's a label that is appropriate. It just so happens it's not used you know, in the Old Testament, it's used later, and then it gets carried into the New Testament. We're still all talking about the same figure. So our theology does not depend on which vocabulary word a biblical writer uses when he uses it. Our theology derives from what the text actually describes in Genesis 3, which is a supernatural rebellion, and of course, a human rebellion too. So our theology of Satan is just fine. You know, we, we just have to realize that, that the terminology here, you know, we don't have proper personal names. We have titles, and titles can be used here or there or anywhere or later or, or you know, in the remote, you know, distant past or future. It doesn't matter. They all describe the same figure in different, you know, different negative ways. And like I said, the, the shoes, all these shoes fit so he can wear them all. That's what he is. He is these things. So, again, People don't need to worry about their theology. Their theology is good theology. It's just that when, you know, and I, look, I can actually testify to this one, not personally, but I've known people that, that have told me, you know, you get into a religion class in your college class, and you just happen to get a professor that can't wait to find out if there's Christians in the room. Hmm. Because in this Bible as Lit 101 class, this is one of the things they're going to throw at you. Hey, students. Hey, Christian. Did you realize that if you read Genesis 3, the serpent is never called Satan? 
In fact, if you read the whole Old Testament, go, go online and get a concordance and look. The serpent is never called Satan. And they're doing this to drive a wedge between the two Testaments and to make you doubt the correctness of your theology, what you've been taught. And so that shouldn't happen. Okay, it should not happen. We should be training people in, in, in church to pay attention to the text and think well about the text. You know, if, you, if your faith is overturned by, by an argument like that, that is so easily explainable, you know, that, that we have only ourselves to blame for stuff like that. You know, yes, I don't like sinister college teachers. Okay, I've, I've run into a few of those, you know. I, I know who, who those people are. I know they exist. But at the end of the day, we have only ourselves to blame. You know, we, we really need to, to have people get into the text and... You know, it's the Word of God. <laughs> I mean, what else can you say about it? Hmm. It's the Word of God. You know, it, it's not, it's not a, you know, a feel-good handbook. It's not, you know, let's let's flip open the Bible and we'll get the latest lesson about how Jesus is our cosmic life coach. You know, it, it, you know the, the Bible teaches us how to live. That's correct. But there's a lot of content in it, and and if you don't know that content, it's no wonder to me why. You know, I said to I said to a class last night that I'm teaching. It's like, look, my my email inbox has become the vortex for people who lose their faith after watching the History Channel or YouTube. You know, it's like you, you run into this stuff about you know scripture or this passage or that passage, and this is just one illustration where I, I look at the these people struggling for their faith, and I and I it's like the answer to this is like two minutes long. You know, how do you not know this? Hmm. Our, our people in our churches are so vulnerable to nonsense. And that just should not be the case. But it is. So we have to live with it, but we, all, we also should be doing something about it. You know, teaching people the text, going back into the text, spending time in the text. And, you know, honestly, if I can say one thing over the course of, you know, Unseen Realm is now six years old, okay? And, you know, people can go on Amazon and it's a big seller and I've got thousands of reviews and all this kind of stuff. But you know what that proves? That proves people are hungry. And you know what else it proves? It proves that we routinely underestimate the appetite of people in our churches for content. And we also routinely underestimate their aptitude for content, and if, if I have learned one thing in six years, you know, I'll, I'll just roll that up. People want content. They are capable. They want it. Okay, they know intuitively that there must be more to the Bible than, again, just the Sunday school stories that we've always told, but now they have adult illustrations. You know, they know, and they're hungry. So let's feed them. You know, and 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 teach them to you know to love the love the scriptures, to love God. Let's be clear on what the gospel is and what it isn't. Let, let's just appreciate, start to appreciate anew, you know, the, the wonder of Scripture. It's intelligence. It's interconnectivity. I'm a dot connector. That's what I do in Unseen Realm. It's, you know, that, that's the, the dirty little secret. There's no original thought in the book. You know, nothing is original to me. It's all from peer-reviewed sources. But what I do is I connect dots. I build the matrix, okay, if I can use that metaphor. I just want people to, to appreciate the connectivity of it all because I am just like them. I've I got one clock hour of this stuff. 
I thought I'm in a doctoral program. I thought I know, you know, I know lots of Bible. I'm in a PhD program. You know, I had to have a providential provocation. That's what it was that, that rattled my cage and got me to reconsider, you know, you know, there, you don't know a whole lot. <laughs> you just don't. And, and it just set me on a path where I had to sort of surrender my, my modern post-enlightenment rationalistic approach to the Bible and remember that, you know, the people God picked to write this thing, they weren't me. They looked at the world a whole lot differently and they were predisposed to seeing, you know, the, the supernatural active all over the place. And it, it's reflected in, in, in what we see in scripture. And it, it scared me at the beginning, you know, like, where is this going to co come out? And I'm here to tell you, you know, people listening, look, if, if you're, if you believe in the core doctrines of the faith, you're good. I mean, that, that, those are going to stand up under scrutiny. They're real. Deity of Christ, virgin birth, all that stuff. Don't move. Don't you move from that. You know, Trinity, salvation by grace alone. But that is just the beginning, okay? That is just the beginning. There is so much more in Scripture that will make you appreciate the interconnectedness of all those things. Mm. And Michael, how God you make us think. Thank you so much for doing the show Great today. Stuff. Thank you for having me. What a delight. Dr. Michael Heiser has been our guest. His book is The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. That's our show for the day. Peter, thank you so much. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.